Um, I have an idea for a screenplay. You guys want to hear it? It's a screenplay for a children's movie. And I think that this is a children's movie that kids are going to watch over and over again, that the parents are going to love, and that's just going to be a marketing success. So let me, let me just pitch it to you real quick. Okay. Imagine the opening scene. There's a husband and a wife, and they are just fun-loving. They get along, and they're in a beautiful, picturesque landscape. They have a wonderful little family of youngsters, and um, so you just fall in love with them right away. And then one day, as they're getting ready for their day, the mom goes outside and is viciously attacked and killed. In fact, all of the children die. Except one child, but that child has a birth defect, and he's left behind to live with his father, who has now a new neurosis because of the tragedy to the family, and he's terrified to even go outside. Well, eventually he has to go outside, and he lets his son go to school. And on that first day of school, well, guess what happens? The son gets kidnapped, right? And aliens take him, and they put him on display for all the other alien people to watch. Well, the father will not let this happen, so the father goes on an adventure. Now, kids are going to love this, right? Because he's nearly killed, and then he's nearly poisoned, and then he nearly gets his girlfriend killed, and then he gets eaten by a leviathan in the water, and then he gets expelled out of the, the, the leviathan's stomach. He gets to where his son is being held captive, only to find his son is dead. Depressed and nearly suicidal, he heads back home, nothing to live for. And then he realizes his son is alive, and they're reunited. But then they get captured. And the father gets away and the son is captured. The father has to let go of all his control in order to realize that his son is strong enough to make it. How do you think that's going to fly? Actually, it's already been made seven years ago. It's called Finding Nemo. And it's one of the most popular children's movies of all time. My kids watch it over and over again. Sick, right? When I just present the film in plot lines and, and tension, it sounds horrible. It sounds inconceivable that anyone would make a movie like that. That's what happens if you go ahead and strip a film like that of its meaning. But what if all of those sources of tension are really vehicles to get us to see that love wins in the end of the day? That sometimes you have to let go of your control in order for things to happen. Well, the story of Noah is another uh, popular children's story that is actually a horrifying tale when you look at the plot lines, right? God kills every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth except for eight people. He kills all living things except for two of every animal, and they put them on this boat. That, that is a horrifying story. Why is this in our Bible, let alone in every children's Bible? You know what's funny is um, Sophia has this thing where we get on the couch together and I'm doing my quiet time with my Bible and she'll have her Bible and um, she'll say, what are you reading? And I'll be, you know, whatever story it is. And she goes, is that in my Bible? Is that in my Bible? She wants to know what's in her Bible. It's like only the most ridiculous, crazy stories are in her Bible. Like the one about mass genocide with Noah and stories like, weird stories like Samson and... Why do these stories make it in kids' Bibles? Maybe it's the animals that endears us to the story. But what does a story like Noah and the flood tell us about God? What does that story tell us about humanity and the world? 
Well, last week we explored the first half of the story in which God looked upon the earth and he saw that all humanity's heart, and we talked about this word heart, it means your heart, means your mind and your body and your will and your intentions, everything wrapped up into one being. And you saw that the human being's entire person was bent on evil all the time. Humans completely rebelled against God's good intent for them, and they're destroying each other and destroying the earth. So God was deeply grieved inside, and he decided to destroy all creation with a big flood. But there was one man, Noah, who had not turned from God. Noah was described as righteous and blameless, which basically boils down to the fact that he trusted God, And he loved his neighbor. He walked with God. So God made a covenant with Noah. And he told him, Noah, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to rescue your family. And I'm going to rescue basically creation through you. Through your obedience. So he told Noah, build this big boat, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, three stories high. He told Noah to prepare all these provisions. Because you're going to have to take two of every kind of animal and seven uh, pairs of the clean ones. You're going to be safe in the midst of the flood. So Noah actually obeyed. I mean, I think this is a crazy sounding thing to do. Noah had radical obedience, right? And we looked at what that word radical means. It means rooted. It doesn't mean off on your own. So Noah was rooted in God's love and rooted in, in, in trusting God. And so Noah obeys and everyone is on board and God shuts the door and the rain starts falling. And the scriptures tell us that the waters prevailed over the earth. That word prevail is a military term. It means crushed or defeated or subdued. So the waters destroyed the earth. And now Noah's been at sea for about 150 days or so. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in Genesis chapter 8. Just like last week, I'm not going to read this every single word in this, but I'm going to give us uh, kind of a storyline. So if you'll stand with me, I'll start in Genesis 8. And let me just make a recommendation. You can follow along if, if that's a big hang-up for you, but you might want to let the words wash over you because if you're like me, this children's story gets kind of stuck in my head and I've got it put on a shelf somewhere, like I totally understand it. Well, when you hear it again for the first time, you might hear some new things. So Noah's bobbing around right now. And... Chapter 8, verse 1 says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Also, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained, and the water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. And on the seventh month, On the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The water decreased steadily until the tenth month, and the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. So then you know the whole thing where the boat's there, and and Noah's sending out different kinds of birds to see if they'll bring anything back to see if they're on dry land. And now I'm in verse 13. You like that? Abridgment. Uh, now it came about in the 600th and first year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water had dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. And then God spoke. He spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. 
Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And so Noah went out and his sons and wives and his wives, his son's wives with him. And every beast and every creeping thing and every bird and everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the smoothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Okay. Now, let's pick this up in 9.8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the cattle and every beast of the earth with you, and all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you and all flesh, shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy all the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I will set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign for the covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring the cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Father, in some ways this is a familiar story. In some ways as we read it again, it's an alien story. And whichever way we read it, it's a difficult story. Help us to lay um, our presuppositions down. And to hear you afresh. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would use me in whatever way I can be used. And use your word to go forth. To show us what you would have us to see. And most of all, to make us more like Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. What a story, right? I mean, this is... It's almost inconceivable. It's almost too amazing for me to grasp. Well, it is. Last week, I asked people to submit questions that they might have about the flood story. You know how we looked at weird things like Nephilim last week and, and stuff. So, so this week, I got a lot of different questions. I'm, there's no way I'm going to be able to get to all of them. But two of the main ones kind of distilled to these. First, the story seems to be far-fetched. So inconceivable, doesn't it? How do we understand the story in terms of, of science or history and things like that? And, and I recognize that a lot of you are either maybe teachers or students or you've, you, know, you, you get confronted with, um, with different theories on this all the time from History Channel or Discovery Channel or for uh, a teacher in university or something like that. So we'll look at that question. And the second 
kind of question basically summed up like this. Many of you said this is a horrible story. What do we do with the mass destruction of humans and animals? How are we to think of God after this story? Okay, those are great questions. But before we begin looking at these two, I just want to remind us of one of the very first steps and very important steps as we approach any scripture or any text, really. We have to ask ourselves, what kind of text is this that we're looking at? This is important because the Bible is written in several different genres or styles of writing, right? You wouldn't interpret one of Paul's letters the same exact way you'd interpret one of the Psalms. Just like you wouldn't read an editorial in the newspaper the same way as you'd read the National Enquirer, right? If you'd even read that at all. Um, So anyway, if you want to write this down, there are two wonderful, very entry-level books for for kind of understanding the books of the Bible. The first one is reading the Bible book by book. This book is, I mean, it's it's written almost at a middle school level. It's very entry level. And and I still reference it all the time just to get a quick overview of what each book of the Bible is mainly about, gives it a theme and some of the main um, themes throughout that book. The second one is reading the Bible for all it's worth. Again, a very accessible book, but with these two just simple, simple tools, you'll be able to... um, to really, you know, approach a text and, and understand what kind of genre we're looking at. All right. So, we're looking at the flood story, and we need to ask, is this a modern historical document focused on a blow-by-blow account of, of the flood or of creation? Is this a scientific document focused on the data and evidence? Or is this a human opinion piece to be read alongside the other accounts of creation or other flood stories? Well, no, it's none of those things, actually. This particular story in Genesis is much more akin to like a mythopoetry of the ancient Near Eastern world. And it's here to help us focus on God's heart for humanity and his creation, okay? It's here to show us who created us, not how, why we were created, not when, and the meaning behind certain relationship-changing events, not their method. It's here to, to show us the meaning of certain relationship-changing events, not their mechanism. Okay, so the flood, it seems to be almost too amazing, doesn't it? How are we supposed to understand this thing? Did the flood cover the whole world, including the top of Mount Everest? Or was it a regional flood? These are kind of the two, I'm I'm making a gross generalization, the two main views. Was it a worldwide flood? Was it a general flood? Two caveats before we go any further. First of all, God can do anything. God can do anything. So the way that we approach a text like this in faith is we never discount, or at least I'll speak for myself, I never discount a story because it doesn't make sense with the laws of physics or it doesn't make sense scientifically. I work with the presupposition that God can do anything. All right, so that's the first thing. Second thing is that based on the fact that this flood story is not a science text, it's not a history text or a a modern history text anyway, we can't expect this story to tell us every little detail of how the flood happened or why, you know, the extent of the flood. So therefore, 
if we believe that God can do anything, then either view, global flood or regional flood, is in play. Either one of those views is in play. Think back to the Genesis 1 when we worked through Genesis 1, and we saw how Genesis 1, again, is not a history text or a science text, and that we can very well be in the same church in the world and also the same local church and have differing beliefs on it. There is room for you people to believe in a 24-hour, six-days literal creation and for you to believe it took six million years because Genesis 1 doesn't really talk about how it happened or how long it happened, okay? The same thing is true with the flood. This group over here could believe in a complete worldwide flood. This group could believe in a regional flood. And as we're going to see, there's evidence for both, both views. But we need to decide, and this is not a hill worth dying on. The key as we approach these types of texts, friends, is, is humility. The key is humility. So you, I hope that you have a conviction. I hope that you come to the, to the text and, and are able to say, I believe this or I believe that. But as we're going to look at this, it's important that we not get dogmatic about it and say, well, I believe this, so therefore you are completely wrong and no longer a follower of Jesus because you think the flood was this way or that way. All right. So, real quickly, the pros for a global flood. Are you ready? These are, I mean, this is real generalization here. First of all, there are flood stories all around the world. We looked at uh, one flood story from Mesopotamia last week, and that makes sense because it was right around where Israel was. But there are flood stories in Asia, and there's flood stories in, actually in the Native Americans right here in Washington State. There's flood stories from ancient South American cultures. And so what we see is that either... The flood happened worldwide, or the flood happened and then people migrated all over the world. But there is evidence of a flood in many cultures around the world. Second, that the scriptures actually say that the water covered the mountaintops and that it killed every living thing. So we have that going for it. Third, there's actually a fossil record on top of Mount Everest. How did those fossils get up there? One of the explanations is that the water was that high. Another explanation is that the flood happened a long time ago and the mountain got bigger. Just saying. Those are differing views among scientists. And fourth, uh, there's silt layers around the whole world that suggest in every major continent that there was some major flood. Now, maybe there was floods at different times on the different continents. We don't know. But these layers suggest that there was a flood in every major continent. All right. So those are the pros for a global flood. Some of the cons of a global flood. Remember... God can do anything. But there is the simple logistics of a global flood. For example, there are roughly 21,000 species of animals. That would make a pairs of two 42,000 different kinds of animals that are going to fit into a 450-foot boat, 75 feet wide with three decks. Just saying. Maybe, I mean, I'm saying you know, God could shrink them down. Maybe there's not one representative from every species, right? The, the scripture actually says different kinds of animals. So maybe uh, of all the, like I was thinking about my cats at home, Felinus domesticus, right? Is that even a family? Is that a family? Genus? Yeah, genus. My old bio talk. Anyway, so maybe God just like the black kinds of cats and then they mutated later on. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff, ways to do this. But I'm just saying that's a lot of animals for a little boat. Uh, the, the other thing is that let's just assume for a moment that 
the, the water even raised as high as Mount Ararat. That's 17,000 feet. That would require, by some estimates, I can't even get my head around this, 630 million cubic miles of additional water than what's on the earth right now. And it would weigh 3 quintillion tons. I didn't even know that was a real word until I started looking into this. A quintillion, okay, three quintillion tons. And so if that actually happened, it would raise the atmospheric pressure in the world 840 times its current level. It'd be squished. So, so that, you know, that's one of the, those are some of the cons of the worldwide theory. Okay, again, God could do anything. He could make us have an iron lung or know how to iron lung or something like that. Or, okay. So then what are the cons against a regional flood? Check this out. The cons for a regional flood are the pros for the worldwide flood. Basically, the scripture says it covered everything, and there are fossil records on top of Mount Everest, and silt layers around the world, right, and stories about floods. So those are the, the cons of the regional flood. And what are the pros for the regional flood? Well, first of all, is in um, the language that we see, where it says the waters covered all, and all creation was destroyed. Um, there's some really interesting text found. Uh, one is called the Sargon Geography. Sargon, he's not a character in Lord of the Rings either. He's a, he's a king, uh, an ancient Babylonian king. And um, in the Sargon text, it says, I am Sargon, king of the universe. I mean, it's not He-Man either. King of the universe. And, and he says that Sargon, king of the universe, conquered tot the totality of land under heaven. So last I checked, Yahweh was king of heaven and earth and, and that you know so this human king probably wasn't king of every thing you know and but the point is that this language is really common to use hyperbole it, the same thing you see in joshua where it says you know they they killed every living thing and then the next chapter it's like well wait i thought they killed all the moabites why are there moabites again it's because they killed a lot of them but not all of them okay so that's typical in hebrew language the, the other thing is that when water is the subject of this covering uh, word, uh, it can also mean drenching. So if in the Hebrew text when it says the waters covered the mountains, it could just mean that they all got wet. It doesn't mean that it was necessarily over, over the tops. The other thing is that in the ancient Near Eastern mindset, and this one's really important, there was no world outside of the, uh, the Mediterranean, the desert on the east, the sea at the south, and the Ararat Mountains to the north. There was nothing else. Uh, flat Earth, that was the one continent. That was the world. Okay? And check this. This is really interesting. You're, you ever see kids um, take chairs, and they, they put the chairs in, and they put a blanket over the top, and that's a fort? My kids make forts all the time. They actually believe that the sky was hung on the mountaintops, that that was the pillars that was keeping the sky up. And so the taller mountains weren't even considered mountains. They weren't even there. They were just the pillars. That, and then the lower mountains were the mountains that could be covered up. So this is really interesting that the, uh, the ancients wouldn't have even had a, a, a conception of a world outside their region. And finally, it really helps to have a, uh, a Ph.D. scientist in our congregation, Wayne Youngquist, whose hobby happens to be oceanography. And he sent me this wonderful email that said, uh, and by the way, this is not 
saying that Wayne believes either way or not. He's just showing some evidence here. He said that during the last ice age, the sea levels were three to 400 feet lower than they are now. And after the ice age began to melt, roughly 10 to 12,000 years ago, the sea levels were still 200 to 250 feet lower than they are today. And what's interesting is the Persian Gulf is only 250 feet deep in most places. So conceivably, Noah could have lived in that basin and what is now completely underwater um, would seem like a, a really massive flood. Now, I say all of this because there's really great pros for the worldwide, and there's really great you know, cons against it, and there's really great pros for the regional, and there's some cons against it. What does it matter? Is our faith based on flood facts? No. Our faith is not based on flood facts. God could do either one. What happened is there was a flood. Cultures all around the world talk about this flood. It happened. How great it was, don't know. But it sure does raise the second question, the ethical question. What's up with God killing everyone? Well, if you're a regional flood person, you could say, well, he didn't really kill everyone. He just killed everyone in the basin. So tens of thousands of people, that's still pretty bad. Well, maybe it wasn't even tens of thousands of people. Maybe it was really localized. It was just hundreds of people. God killed hundreds of people? I mean, you could keep going like this until it's one person. And if you happen to know that one person, that's a pretty big deal that God would kill one person. So whether it's a hundred million or one, we've got a story about God killing people and killing all the animals in a region or the world. I think that this story is here to shake us up a bit. It really is. As much as I'd love to explain this away, I cannot. What we are seeing here is the reality of a loving God and a just God. A loving God and a just God. A, a God who really does hate sin. A God who really does love his creation enough to want to rescue it from complete annihilation. The point of this story is that the hearts of human beings were totally corrupted and that God's heart was grieved. His spirit shook. In John 11, Jesus is confronted with the death of his friend Lazarus. It's the same type of language. He was deeply grieved, shaken to his core. You can imagine him trembling. God isn't vengeful or temperamental or vindictive. God creates out of love for the sake of love. And the ultimate expression of love is to give one freedom. God takes a chance, and this is sticky language, but for lack of a better way to put it, God takes a risk, if you will, in loving human beings whom he has given choice whether or not to love him back. You take a risk every time you invest in someone. Anytime you invest in a friend, you take a risk that they will not love you back. Anytime you give yourself away in marriage, you take a risk. You make yourself vulnerable. If you have a child, you take a risk that all the investment one day... They could turn away from you. 
God is grieved to his very core that his beautiful creation and that the people he loved and to be in a love relationship, he is grieved that, that, that they have rebelled against him. And he will not allow his creation to, to continue to kill each other and to continue to destroy all that he had once seen as beautiful. So, in a mixture of judgment and mercy, can you imagine in, in a place where every human heart was completely corrupted against God, could you imagine bringing children into that world or living in that world? It would actually be kind of a mercy to end something like that. So it's this mixture of judgment and mercy. God wipes out corrupted creation. And, you know, I wrestled with this this week, more than this week. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem ethical. It doesn't seem fair, right? But the problem with me saying that is that basically I'm saying, God, I've got a better idea than you do of what's ethical and right and fair. And C.S. Lewis says it this way, that once you start to make that argument, you're sawing off the limb you're sitting on. You can't even reason without God's grace giving you a mind to be able to reason. The story about Noah and this flood and these confusing, horrible things is, is a reminder that God is bigger than our theological boxes we want to stuff Him in. He's bigger than our theological axioms and our small definitions of what is good and what is bad. Now, that being said, notice there's a pattern here in Genesis. That once again, God's judgment is outpaced by His grace. Every single time, starting in the garden, Cain and Abel, and now the flood story. Sin is met with judgment because God is just, but His grace and mercy outpaces His judgment. He chooses a man named Noah and his family, who we don't know is righteous or unrighteous, they just get to come along because Noah's a good guy. He chooses Noah, Noah's family, two of every animal and seven of the clean ones to rescue the world. Grace and love win the day. So regardless of whether or not the flood was global or regional, there's Noah. He's rescued now. He's in the boat. God closed the door and now he's bobbing in a sea of chaos. He is bobbing up and down and rolling side to side with a bunch of animals crammed on a floating box or a coffin, which I'm sure he saw it both ways in certain days of the week. Noah and his family and literally all of creation are rudderless. There is no rudder. There is no helm on this boat. And they are powerless in a sea of chaos. And here is the gospel line. But God remembered Noah. The turning of the tide. But God remembered Noah. Now, does this mean that God is at his desk one day? And he's taking a break, scratching his head, and he sees a piece of scratch paper and says, Remember Noah. Oh, darn it, I forgot about him. He was out there floating around, and I, I don't think so. That, that's what I would do. Oh, remember to call so-and-so. So if you haven't got a call from me and I'm supposed to call you, I'm sorry. It's probably on a scratch paper something. But no, that's not the way that God remembered. Bruce Waltke reminds us that in Hebrew thought, and especially in terms of references to God, to remember, listen, this is important, to remember 
is to act upon a previous commitment to a covenant partner. To remember is to act upon a previous commitment to a covenant partner. To remember is to act upon a previous commitment to a covenant partner. God made a covenant with Noah to rescue him. And now he's fulfilling that covenant. Noah is floating in his ark lifeboat over the waters of chaos. The land is basically uncreated again. You remember in the beginning, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and his spirit floated over the waters of chaos. And what did he do? He created boundaries and he brought land. Well, now everything is uncreated. Waters of chaos rule the land again. And God begins to push the waters back. He sends out his wind, and literally, it's his ruach. That is his spirit, just like in Genesis 1. He sends his spirit out over the water. And the waters begin to recede and to recess. And God is recreating the world, going to replant it with this ark full of animals and Noah and his family. The water subsides, and there's Noah on dry land. After nearly a year at sea, he's on dry land. And what would you do? I'd be getting off that boat with those stinky animals and my in-laws. And ah, No offense. I mean, it's, no. He's been on the ark for all that time. Why doesn't he just get out? Because he trusts God. He waits almost a month. And then God says the word, and then he gets off the boat. And I tell you what, man, Noah's obedience here is really convicting to me. For most of us, and I'll use the us because I'm taking a chance it applies to you too. When the waters of chaos come over our lives, we either want to cling to our ark of safety, or we want to get way out ahead of God. God, you're moving too slow. I'm going to make something happen, right? Don't you find yourselves in one of those camps? And it makes me think, what are the waters of chaos in your life and mine? Loss is a huge source of chaos. Loss of loved ones. Loss of job. Loss of health. Loss of relationships or money. Loss of a feeling of purpose. What am I doing with my life right now? And what are our arcs? What is our source of safety when these troubled waters enter our lives? It's so funny if you listen to the messages of culture. Our culture wants us to turn to financial security on the one hand. While at the same time, they're preaching a message of spend more on yourself to take your mind off your troubles. Seems like the same marketing person is behind both schemes. We're tempted to numb our pain. Alcohol, drugs, loveless sex. Or we're tempted to put our, arc, or our hopes in the arc of politics. And let me tell you, Corey and I had an educational experience the other night. We sat down with our ballots. You know, we had the computer out, the voter's guide. And we're like, there's no more candidates than this? Like, this is all we have to choose from? I'm, I, let me tell you, friends, if politics is our arc, we are in big trouble. I'm just saying. The reality of our real security is found in the ark of God, in his covenant, in his covenant to care for us. On the other hand, when things are going really well, 
right? And new storms arise. Aren't we quick to want to get out of that comfort? Aren't we, want to, aren't we quick to run ahead of Jesus? Like, Jesus, I really, you know, I liked hanging out with you when uh, it was all like snuggly, quiet times in the morning and my coffee and the world is all as it should be, right? Just like the song says. But now the stuff's hitting the fan and I, you're moving too slow. You're not talking to me. I've got to get out of here and do it my own way. And we want to take control, right, through achievement. We want to coerce God into doing something, so we we try and be good. We try and lead with good behavior, but maybe our heart isn't even in the place to to really act act out right. Listen to what Helmut Thielicke writes. As Noah sends out the dove, and he sends this message to his God, I cannot see... But I wait for thee. And God answers, But I see thee, and I am coming. See, Noah, the Tilika continues, Noah was a happy and a blessed man, for he did not anxiously wait for what might come, but he waited for him who most certainly will come, for him who will surely be there in the proper time. I'm convicted by that. It is difficult to wait on either side of the storm. The frightening truth about this flood is that God openly says in the scripture, the intent of humanity's heart is evil from their youth. Friends, it hasn't gotten any better. It has not gotten any better. I am no better a man than the men that lived before the flood. I deserve to be flooded over. And I dare say, you deserve to be flooded over. We all have corrupted hearts. That doesn't mean we're not nice people. That doesn't mean we're not nice people. But nice, nice isn't full of love. Nice isn't self-sacrificial. Nice is not good enough to get into a, a saving relationship with God. And so here's the good news. God created another way. God created another way. He knows we can't save ourselves. And even Noah, who was a righteous and blameless guy, ended up sinning. There's no perfect person. The Creator created another way for us to be rescued. And the way is described in the rainbow. The rainbow is a reminder. Did you... Hear this when I was reading the scripture? I will put my bow in the sky, and when I look on it, I will be reminded, says the living God. The the rainbow isn't a reminder necessarily, necessarily to you and I. It's a reminder to God about his covenant. So maybe the rainbow, when I look at it, is a reminder to me that God is reminded to save me. What an amazing image. Did you know that the word for rainbow is really, it's the same as a bow of war. God's wrath, which was expressed in a flood in this story, is now expressed in the amazing grace that he has taken his bow of war, his bow of wrath, and he's not aimed it at the world anymore. He's aimed it where? Up at heaven. He's he's taken his bow of war, he's hung it in the sky, and it aims at him. And so the wrath that you and I deserve, he takes upon himself.
in the rainbow, we see one at one and the same time that our rebellion is so great that the wrath of God, um, that, that his bow of war is in order. We deserve that. But God's grace triumphs because he aims the bow at himself. Loving us costs God. Loving us costs God. But apparently, apparently it's a cost he's willing to absorb. That we could have new life in Jesus. Let me end with these words from 1 Peter. Speaking of Jesus, he went and proclaimed God's salvation to earlier generations who ended up in the prison of judgment because they wouldn't listen. You know, even though God waited patiently all the days that Noah built his ship, only a few were saved then, eight to be exact, saved from the water by the water. The waters of baptism do that for you, not by washing away dirt from your skin, but by presenting you through Jesus' resurrection before God with a clear conscience. Jesus has the last word on everything and everyone, from angels to armies. He's standing right alongside God, and what he says goes. And you know what he says? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart. So friends, I don't know how you respond to that. It's incredible grace that we, on the one hand, deserve the wrath of God. And that he knows that that's not the way to save us. It just wipes us out. So he takes that wrath on himself. And it's even more beautiful than him just poo-pooing our sin and saying, Ah, don't worry about it. No, he is worried about it. He's the living God. He's fully just. He can't get it out of his heart. So he takes it. He says, come to me. Follow me. Trust me. Turn away from the way that you're living. Trying to save yourself or run from me. Because I've got the ear of the Father. Trust me. If you're on my side, you're as good as in the ark. The ark of salvation. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I'm just blown away um, by your mercy and grace. And I, I just confess, too, I don't fully even get it. I may stand up here and I preach about your wrath and about how I deserve, um, <laughs> deserve death. But I feel like I'm just learning um, how fallen I am. And the more I learn how fallen I am, the more I see how wonderful your grace is. Lord, my prayer is that you would take this message out of our heads and get it in our hearts. That we would respond, Lord, not out of, oh, that makes sense, but out of being shaken to our core that this is the ring of truth. That you gave everything for us that we could have new life in you. So, Lord, we repent, repent afresh and ask you to help us turn from false arcs, false securities, false saviors. 
We trust you. Amen.